my path from Tijuana to Los Angeles, it was more like how I navigated as a person of color under the shadows in a country that has a different culture, a different language and different resources that I didn't have before. And these are things that I have now in my everyday life that not just me, I think a lot of people take for granted. You are listening to Change Lab, conversations on transformation and creativity. I'm Lauren Buckman, president of Art Center College of Design. We are trying something new. We have decided to add an episode every year to the Change Lab podcast that will feature one of our graduating students. It's a way for our listeners to learn directly about some of the amazing people who attend this college. We begin that endeavor today with a conversation with Jackie Amesquita, who just graduated from our fine art department this past spring. Jackie's life and work have been shaped by a series of transformative journeys. Each of these passages has called upon her to summon tremendous strength and stamina, courage and creativity, resourcefulness and resilience. All these qualities were wholly evident in her final project as an Art Center student, as she embarked on a 178-mile walk from the Tijuana border to downtown LA. Her walk received widespread media coverage, and deservedly so, for offering an intimate first-hand perspective on the experience of undocumented immigrants. It also seemed to foreshadow the wave of deeply distressing news stories about the plight of young immigrants captured at the border. In light of those recent events, I felt it was important to add context to Jackie's creative achievements by speaking to her about her original border walk at age 17 from her native Guatemala to the United States. Jackie undertook that arduous and dangerous journey on foot with a group of strangers. She was determined to reunite with her mother, who had come to the United States when Jackie was just two years old. She came to earn the funds necessary to support Jackie's brother, who was in desperate need of expensive medical care. Over the course of a conversation that was at turns inspiring, illuminating, and heartbreaking, Jackie retraced the dramatic twists and turns of an incredible survival story. It is also, however, a story of love with a promising resolution, complete with an Art Center degree, a green card, and a bright future ahead. Well, thank you so much, Jackie, for coming in today. It's wonderful to see you, and congratulations again on your graduation. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. You did a wonderful and very thought-provoking final project that captured our imagination. And I think a good way to begin is if you could just tell the listeners about the project itself, and then maybe we can get into some of the story behind it. Right, right, right. Uh, so the project was called uh, Footprints That Sprout. In Spanish, is Huellas Que Germinan. And it was a walk that started from the border of Tijuana, um, Mexico, in uh, San Diego, California. And it was a walk that took uh, eight days, and I started from sunrise to sunset, and it was 178.6 miles. I finally got to do the countdown. (laughs) How is that right? Yeah, Yeah. I think I said in my talk that it was 140 miles, probably miss... Yeah. Because that's what Google Maps said, that's all. Yeah, that... And then I've seen it in the paper, and the press is 150 miles. Right, I finally got to count the miles that I did each day, (laughs) and that's when I, like, added, and I realized how much I walk. Right, of course. Eight days, sunrise to sunset. Correct. And was there a specific number of miles a day that you wanted to cover? Uh, For the first stage of the walk, like the first three days, I needed to walk 
like about 60 to 70 miles because I needed to be on Dana Point by Sunday. So every day, like the miles were changing depending on the locations and the places where I was going to stay. Friends of friends were finding um, homes where I can spend the night. And also uh, some of the people that I work for as nanny, um, as a nanny, they were uh, finding me spots or even like motels where I could spend the night. I see. And how much of it did you walk alone and how much of it were you accompanied by friends or family? I was accompanied by friends and family for like 50 miles. And then I did like almost 100 miles on my own. And what was behind it? What was the idea you were exploring? It was, uh, to me, it was just having the privilege to now navigate the city uh, with a green card without being without the fear of being detained by immigration in this area and, you know, being sent back to Guatemala. Um, sometimes we forget the privilege that we have of walking and, and we underestimate the strain that our bodies actually mm. have and um, the responsibilities that we have also as, as individuals in the world. Um, of what are we giving back? You know, I went through a lot in my life, so it was my time to like shred and then sort of like give back because it's, it was really vulnerable for me to talk about this. So I was just giving back the story of 2.5 billion of undocumented people that are right now here in the U.S., you know, going through the same uh, life circumstances. Say more about walking itself. Mm-hmm. What is it about walking and walking long distances and walking long distances over an extended period of time, what kind of meaning does that have for you? I think that um, we, the before, you know, we learn how to walk, we learn how to like crawl and then fall and then, you know, make little steps and then, you know, continue walking and continue to learn the, pro- the, the process of walking through our life. And to me, it was like, this this walk, it was me like shedding and leaving behind this history of being under the shadows for so many years, mm. for more than a decade. And, and also by me stepping on the soil, on the ground, it was leaving a mark. It was, it, it was me bringing the soil from one place to another and like recollecting it and like leaving it behind like step by step by step. That was part of like you know, pass, but my, you know, like the, the footsteps, the five footsteps that I had, like in the last seconds are part of my past while the steps where I'm stepping right now is part of my present. Right. And that's beautiful and poetically resonant. And on an ostensible level to us, it also speaks of tenacity, of endurance, mm-hmm. maybe even resilience. Mm-hmm. Resistance too. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just... You, by walking, you, your body's still standing, you know, it's in, in mm, it's a form that. of like resistance, right? Like we're still standing. Right. Well, let's put those together and maybe you can explore those a little bit. Endurance and mm-hmm. resistance and tenacity. How did that have meaning in what it was that you were doing? Um, I think that that's something that I found on the walk, the endurance, like the not knowing if my body was going to resist and to to go through uh, something that I was not used to. Um, I didn't like train for, you know, people that walk those kind of long distances, like train from six months to a year. I just trained for two weeks for an hour with my backpack. So it was like pretty much nothing. And that 
um needed to like focus on like okay so i need to i need to keep going i need to go through but what happens when your body's telling you 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 have to stop like even if you you have the strain the emotional strain to keep going but not the physical one and then you have to figure out ways that you keep you can keep going because it happened like i was losing too much salt and i didn't know um that i was cramping because my body was just needing more salt and um i had to like start taking salt pills and i was like i i, I don't understand how my body's going to react to this but in 20 minutes the cramps were gone and i was like oh that's right how were you made aware of that it happened actually in the house of my uh, my friend isabella's where uh, her uncle um he trains for like hours oh. in in his bicycle that was and, convenient yeah, and it was yeah. very convenient and so he gave me a, a bunch of like supplements to take for my body to you know resist and i was just like that's right like i cannot just do it on my own you know i need this other other elements to come into place so i can resist and be able to do this but um at the same time it was like uh, it was it was a privilege to have it because someone was providing that for sure, me sure. i didn't have even the knowledge of salt pills mm-hmm. you know like mm-hmm. i was like oh potassium i need bananas as you speak about this it's interesting because there's this level of you know the walk itself and some of the poetic echoes of the walk itself mm-hmm. But there always, for you, it seems like there's this meta level of privilege. Mm-hmm. This time you're walking and you have a green card and this time you can get help with supplements and this mm-hmm. time you can stop at people's homes. And mm-hmm. You're going through something, you're enduring it, you are echoing and physicalizing a story. But simultaneously, it's really the meta level of privilege that weaves its way throughout the whole Right, right. Like I had the right shoes. Um, I had a debit card where I could stop at any gas station and buy me Gatorade and <laughs> and coconut water or any other like liquid that I needed to get hydrated. There was a lot of thinking when I was on my own because I had to face, um, I think, memories too that I blocked as a little girl because they were like too painful and I understood how my mind was trying to block things at the moment and I had to like say no like stop I need to analyze this. Did the walk itself trigger those memories is that what you're saying? Yeah it did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Something that I was not expecting. There was a lot of unexpected things during the walk. The relationship between the physicalization and memory being triggered was the experience you had just to be clear about it. Mm-hmm. So it was physical and emotional, like mental right. too. So it was like working my working out my physical endurance and also my mentally, my mental health. Well, maybe it's a good time then to take a pause before we get back to that. And if you will just tell us a little bit about your story growing up and where you're from and what this walk was recalling in your own past. Um, So I crossed the border illegally in 2003. uh, And I wasn't able to actually say this before um, I started my um, senior projects here at our center a year ago. I migrated here to reunite with my mother who actually um, crossed the border illegally too in 1987 when my brother was like about two months old because uh, he was having seizures and and, uh, my family couldn't afford uh, the hospital bill that it was like $1,500, about that 
back in that time. And my dad used to make like about like $2 a month. Mm. <laughs> so it was mm. going to be like too much money for my family to afford that hospital bill in Guatemala. And my brother kept like having seizures and going back to the hospital. So bills were like summing up. And uh, so my mother had the opportunity to like come here and work as, as you know, as a housekeeper, as a nanny or just you know, cleaning cars in a car wash and doing whatever she needed to do just to, you know, send money to us so she could pay for the hospital bills of my brother. Um, so he was, we were, we were just there in Guatemala with my dad and my grandmother while my mom was working here. So you are how old when your mom leaves? I was like two, two years and some mm-hmm. months. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you grow up in Guatemala. Your mother is, is, stuck here in the United States? She was stuck here, but I think that her love and care and like need of seeing us like brought her back to Guatemala. So she was like coming back and forth to go like see us and take care of my brother for a little bit and then come back here and work. So each time that she would do that, she was risking her life, Mm -hmm. her life. The last time I, we saw her, it was when um, my brother her, had like seizures when he was in third grade. So he was about like 10 years old. And on her way back to the States, um, she almost got raped twice. Hmm. And that was the last time we saw her because she was too afraid of of things happening to her that she decided that she was just going to stay for a little more and see if she could bring us in or, you know, go back to Guatemala. How long a period was there between times of seeing your mom when she stopped her visits to Guatemala? There was like between two, three years. Okay. Mm -hmm. So now you're 17 years old, is that right? And -hmm. you have an opportunity to come here? Exactly. So what happens? I was just very sad that I never like had my mom with me and then I could have the opportunity to be with her and like growing up and being in high school and seeing all my friends um, having their moms and their shoulders when they were sad or things could, you know, could happen gave me like the courage to come here with some people, not friends of the family, but people that my, my family knew that could like bring me here and make safe that I was going to make it, that I was not going to be burning any um, trash can in Mexico or this be destroyed in acid or like none of those things were going to happen to me if a person that they knew was going to like help me get across. And these were stories you were aware of, right? These are stories About that young was... women getting burned and bodies being destroyed and yeah. trash can uh, oil drums. Really, oil drums, right? yeah. yeah. And for example, in, in 2003, exactly when I crossed, there were like 40 bodies of women being destroyed in acid and these like drum oils in, in Ciudad Juarez. And uh, when I decided to come, um, my parents got divorced when I was four years old. My um, dad became an alcoholic. So it was like harder on my mom. That's one of the reasons that she couldn't like go back to us because there was no other support than just my mom and and my grandma. And so we were we were just left by the care of my grandmother. And when my mom and I decided that I was gonna come that way, my and I told my my grandmother like I'm leaving, like I'm gonna go and meet my mom. And the first thing she said was like, we're never gonna hear back from you because you're going to be destroying one of those drum oils of acid and we're never going to figure it out where you are. Mm -hmm. 
And I told my grandma, like, don't say that. I'm going to make it. Just, like, pray and, and don't cry. <laughs> you know? And Jackie, were you ambivalent? Were you torn at that time as to whether or not you should leave Guatemala and try to be with your mom? Or were you just quite fixed that this was what you needed to do and you were just going to be determined and follow through and do it? There was half and half. Like, there was a termination where I needed to, like, be with my mom. Like, I need my mom. And I was torn at the same time that I had to leave behind my grandmother, my brother, uh who was like six, 15 at a time, and then say goodbye to my friends. And I, I didn't even have to. Like, I didn't even physically have to say goodbye. I didn't have the choice or the chance to do it because when you do these things, you, you better not say anything because you can you might get killed if they realize that you're actually crossing the border. Like, you have to be invisible. Right. Okay, tell the story then. What happens when you try to come here? So I try to come here and... And it took us like two months to get here. What were you doing over those two months? Um, hiding, walking um, without salt pills, <laughs> <laughs> without like any other like resources mm-hmm. in my legs and a small little backpack. You yeah. weren't alone, right? No, I was not alone. We were with a, a group of other people and people that I didn't know. Uh, I almost like got raped on the night before I crossed the border. Um, I remember spending the night on the rooftop of this house where they had us um, because the coyote told me that um, he asked me if you want to stay and I I can protect you. I can make you my wife. I will give you food if you decide to stay with me. And he was looking at me like... This was in Mexico? This was in Mexico. And, And I was always wearing like losing clothes and, you know, not to try to show my body. Um... And, and be quiet, but also I, I had a lot of questions because I wanted to know where I was, where we were going in case like I needed to, you know, reach out for help. I knew where I where, where my location was. I asked, um, I, was, I was quiet, but I was asking a lot of questions. And then I asked like, where's our last stop? And they were like, we're going to the terminal, the bus terminal. I was like, what are we doing there? We're just gonna walk to get to the house that we're gonna stay. For how long are we gonna stay there? For a couple of days and then, okay, after there we're going to cross? And they were like, yeah, yeah, stop asking questions. We cannot talk here. Okay. When you finally made it to the U.S. border in Mexico for the first time, mm-hmm. what happened? My body was physically tired. I couldn't take it anymore. I was done. I, I feel like I needed to take a break, but I had no choice. I had to continue. So it was, it was a big group of people. I can't remember how many we were, but I will guess like between like maybe 15, 20, 25. There was this mom with um, her nephew who was like three years old and she had a, like a brand new baby. Um, it was two weeks. So I, maybe I felt identified. Some sort of like seeing this mom with a little brand new baby. Um, But at the moment, I didn't realize it. And uh, we were hiding in the desert. And then we started like walking again. And all of a sudden, we heard like run, you know, they're coming. So we just like started like running. And I had like one of those like one liter bottle of waters with me uh, that I had to like, that was my, my, my whole source of life. For the two weeks that we were going to walk in the desert. And I had to like leave it behind so I could like run faster and not get caught. But I realized that when everybody run, this mom with a baby run away. But she left the little boy 
behind. Hmm. And I couldn't think. I just react pretty much in the moment. And I stop. And I knew I was going to get caught. But I couldn't leave that little boy there. Because I was feeling that immigration was just not going to care about him. And just leave him there. And he was going to be eaten by a coyote or an animal. I, I couldn't. So I turned around. I went to grab him. And of course I got caught because of that. They thought I was like smuggling the kid because I didn't I didn't even think that I needed to have like a birth certificate of me to prove he was mine, but I was not claiming him. So they took him away. They treat me really bad. What does and, that mean that they treated you really bad? What happened? Because they just like grabbed they grabbed me and they threw me on the ground and I don't remember if it was my right or my left, but I was like old Bruce. And the next day I couldn't like um I felt like I couldn't continue, but when when they got me, they took me to this detention center in Arizona where that was the, the checkpoint I crossed. And they were asking me if I was where I was from. And I was like, I'm from Mexico. And she prove us that you're Mexican and uh, give us your credential. And I was like, I don't have one. And I lost it. And how can you prove that you are from Mexico? And, you know, through all the, the whole trip, like I pretty much learned the national anthem of Mexico. And I was like, oh, well, you know, in school, like in first grade, we learn how to like sing the national anthem and I can sing that to you. And then I was just singing the national anthem. I don't know if they knew it or not, <laughs> but that saved me that day. They released me in Mexico and I was so grateful that I didn't have to continue you know, the journey back from Guatemala, that I was still close to my mom and I still have, you know, that sure. little hope that I could still make it. And then what happens? And then I had to figure it out how to get... Are you alone to, at this point? I was alone because... The no people, more group. No more group. I knew that I needed to get to the bus terminal of Agua Prieta. And then if I can, like, lo relocate myself where I was walking, I could get to the house where we were staying. Right. You know, it's so interesting. It's as if you had an instinct for anticipating problems that would come up and gathering some kind of information or coming up with a plan like you did with the Mexican National Anthem that would get you out of those difficult situations. It feels intuitive to me. Yeah, it was intuitive, but um, I feel that it was also memories of my mom doing these things. Like I remember my mom hiding, you know, like a pocket on her bra, you know, her cash or like in like this like side of, you know, where your belt goes, like making a cut there and hiding the money there. So it was it was like intuition, but also uh, as a consequence of going through this with my mom. Sure. That I didn't like realize any something that I realized right now when I was walking. Right, and you honed those skills. And so it's two weeks after you've been turned away and you found your way back to this house. Mm -hmm. And then how did you cross over? So I found my way to this house and that's when the coyote asked me if I wanted to stay with him. Like he, will, he, he said that he will make me his wife and I was just so scared because that's something that is common. And I remember that I didn't answer anything. I was just like probably like shocked and nice. Because he laughed. I remember he was laughing when he saw my my reaction. I don't even know what kind of reaction I had. And that that's the night where I just like went up on top of the roof of this house where we were staying. And I was just looking at the sky because this town had no lights. It was like an, sort of a ghost town. And I could see the lights of like Phoenix on the other side. 
and like wow I was like so close and my body couldn't take it anymore I was so tired like mentally and emotionally I couldn't take it anymore and I felt that I was stronger the day that I tried to cross when I got caught then today they were telling me this is the day you have to go like the next day they were pushing me to go and I was like no I need to wait at least one day give me a break please and they were like no you have to and that's the day where I made it tell us about that moment of crossing It was early, early in the morning. It was really cold. For some reason, I was always looking at my footsteps. Maybe I didn't want to like face my reality and the environment sometimes. That I was just like looking down. Plus, it was dark, so I couldn't really see around more than, you know, what I had in front of me. I knew that if I was going to get caught by immigration, they were going to keep me in the detention center for two months because that's what they said when they released me if we see you again we're gonna keep you here for two months and i'm giving you my word and that's why i was scared can you describe I... a moment when you realized actually that you had made it that you had crossed over successfully it was it was just um houses they said okay we're gonna just hide in here nobody talk and there's a car that is gonna come and honk and that's the key When he honks, you follow me. And and um, they hit me in the car, like in the feet, like in the feet of a person. It was like a pickup truck. So, but on I, the floor of the car? On the floor of the car, yeah. And because I was the tiniest, it, it was like one, two, three, four of us in like a, in like just a regular pickup truck, not double um, seats or anything in the back, just a pickup truck, like two people hiding in there. One people sitting and me in the uh, on the bottom feet and like I di I didn't see anything. I just heard the hunk. I run. I did what they said, and they drove for like three hours. And when I just got there, I just remember seeing like concrete, like concrete in a parking lot. And they were like, "Hurry, hurry, hurry! Like get in the house." And yeah, that's all I remember. I don't remember correctly. I I didn't even realize if it was here or not like i see like what's the difference between mexico and the u.s like sure, it sure. looked similar sure sure yeah you make it over and you call your mom no i didn't call my mom they did because they needed to ask for money and my mom was okay but i need to make sure because this was different kind of people there's not one person that gets gets you across there's like multiple people that are connecting the dots that get you across Yeah, they called my mom and they were, you know, they were just waiting to get the rest of the money so they could let me go. Otherwise, I will have to, you know, stay there and keep doing housework and until my mom will, you know, give the money. And then you make your way to L.A.? And then, yeah, yeah. But it was, it was complicated. How, how long did it take before you were able to get to Los Angeles to meet up with your mother? Um, I had to stay there for a couple of days because the people that were coming with me, they, their family didn't have the money. So they were not letting us go. And this guy where we were staying, I was the only one that he was taking out to buy groceries and to buy me like shampoo and stuff. And and I told my mom, you know, this is what's happening. Oh, they're treating me well. You know, they're taking me out to get groceries and then buy me clothes and get me shampoo. And my mom sold the flag. I didn't. And my mom was like, no, we need, to get, we need to get you out of there. And so she had to pay for the money of these other two people. What so was they, really going on? I, I think that they wanted, like, they wanted me to stay there. And like, pr pretty much because there's, there's a lot of human trafficking 
you know, it's not just nice people getting you across for a nice reason or because they wanted to, you know, there's money reasons behind it. you could just quickly take us from reconciliation with your mom in Los Angeles uh-huh. and then take us to, you know, getting to Art Center, which is probably an interesting part of the story as well. Yeah, it is. Um, I got with my mom and, you know, we were good for like a couple of months. I was not aware of all the things that I needed in order to be a normal person in California. So I started like losing my integrity without realizing that, that 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 things that I didn't have the privilege of having a driver license and a social security, so I couldn't work. And, and then I didn't speak the language and I didn't understand things of the culture. So it was like really tough. So I started like learning the language, going to ESL at nights after working at my mom's daycare because that was my first job. But I couldn't just stay there. I couldn't just be there I needed to like do more and and I was you know one of the families that I work for they were like Jackie check these classes for college you just have to start with English and math and I was like I don't think I can do this it's too expensive and um I went there and of course you know I needed a social in order to start college and the only way to join like community college was to be an international student And to be an international student, tuition was like, you know, $600 per unit. And I was like, no, I can't do this. And I remember crying and I said, no, I have to look at the positive side and I'm just going to enroll and pay little by little and take the classes. And it took me seven years, but I finished (laughs) and and I finished. Yeah. I finished um, my associate degree in visual communications. And then I was like, okay, so I think I'm ready to transfer to schools. And I was still undocumented. And then I started like looking at schools and thinking in possibilities of how I was going to pay for it. Like working as a nanny and cleaning houses and having two, three jobs. I did it so I can do it even though it's going to take me longer. And I started like researching about art schools and I bump into our center. <laughs> And I visit our center and I realized um, that this was my home. And then I fell in love with the school and I was just like determined on this is what I want. This is where I want to go. I look into like the faculty of the school and it was like working artists and professionals. And I was like, I need to come to this school. Well, lucky us. Really, yeah. And then back then, uh, Nicola was part of admissions. Yes. And now, um, and I remember going to her and like being scared, and because I wasn't documented, and like this school like rejecting me and saying, uh, "Sorry, we cannot take you because you know you have to pay like blah 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 blah." And instead of that, the school was offering me a scholarship to join the school. And I was like, "Okay, how am I gonna cover the rest of my expenses?" But it was a big step to me, and I was like, "No, if I was able to do this, like I don't know how long it's gonna take me to do that, but I think I can do it. I just have to work really hard and be positive, and I'm gonna." figure it out down the line if I keep working hard and I'm focused to my goals. And um, Well, given how yeah. challenging Art Center is, <laughs> I think your story uh, presents a clear <laughs> yeah. capacity to face it. 
Let's just quickly go through another uh, subplot of your story here, too. When did you know you were an artist? Uh, I think um, that during the walk, I also realized that there's no difference between, like, Jackie as a person or me as an artist. Like, I'm the same thing. I cannot be Jackie or the artist separate. Like, I work as the same person. But I never had the chance to have that recognized on me and also to encourage to be encouraged with my ideas and had the support that I needed because I didn't have those resources. Of course. But did you do it anyway? Did, I did. you sketch? Did you write? Did you play with materials yeah. and put it all together? Yeah. And materials. so it was, it was all there. If you go materials. through that and trace that part of your life yeah. it's all there you're doing the work you're i was i was melting clay on top of mm. my grandmother's um <laughs> corn pot mm-hmm. where she was like you know boiling the corn for the tortillas mm-hmm. putting pieces of papers with clay on top and letting it melt and getting in trouble mm-hmm. and were you yeah. even again were you conscious of yourself as somebody who needed to create that way to be involved in exploring and making and yeah, engaging I'm, in the world in that yeah, kind of creative way. I feel that, and that's that's sort of my language of communicating too. You know, I can speak in English and Spanish, but I also can communicate with my hands, not but with words, but by showing a message with my sculptures and my installations, and and how I involve the materials and the use of them, and like the incorporation of this concept with the materials in it. So yeah. And and I also think that that's also changing because I I like found myself like being more performative to like this performative aspect that is part of my life, you know that that I was not aware of until the walk. <laughs> right. Let's go to the end of the walk when you come to uh, Chinatown in Los Angeles, and if you could just briefly tell us about that, and then I'd like to explore one other level of the work. Right. Um, when I got to Chinatown, I was really grateful. I was grateful to be present, to be there in the moment, to see the people who have been supporting me for so many years, uh, to see all the support from my classmates, from our center, from faculty, from my family, from my friends. I was just grateful that I was able to do it and I was able to see them and hug them again and grateful to to be alive, you know, to be able to walk, to uh, to understand the word, the word um, self-care mm-hmm. and being able to hug my mom. And when you got back, there was um, an oil drum there. There was an oil drum. What did you do with that? The oil drum, I abducted it uh, a couple of weeks, a couple of months before the performance from uh, Mexicali. And these oil drums are used to um, dissolve body, bodies in acid in Mexicali because they're easy to find on the street and easy to dispose. So those words that my grandmother said to me when I left Guatemala were present, uh, you're going to get, you're going to be dissolved in acid and I'm never going to get to find you and see you again. And um, I was trying to find the, you know, the the light in those cracks in my life, the 
positive uh, within all this negative and, and trauma in my life. And to me, abducting this trash can from Mexico, and I call it abducting because I pretty much dumped a trash in another trash can, took it in a van, crossed the border, and I didn't have any uh, problems with immigration. Um, it's another form of like resistance of I got to the gallery where this oil oil drum was surrounded by uh, clothes from people that knew me and that have been with me through this path in my life. And they were catching out the water that it was spilling out when I got into the drum. The clothing was. The clothing it, it was that was absorbing the water. Was absorbing the water right. that it came out when I got inside the drum. Right. So, so you came, you concluded the walk, you went right up to this oil drum. Right. I went right into this oil drum. I And it was I, filled with water. It was filled in with water and surrounded by the clothes. And um, I was I, when I walked, um, before I walk in, I was standing next to the oil drum and I started like uh, having eye contact with the people that were waiting for me. And, and you know, just eye contact and mm. s- different ways of like saying thank you and being grateful of seeing everybody there. Then I took off my overalls that were with me through these eight days. Um, and then underneath, I had a crochet suit that I crochet with um, this cotton fiber from Guatemala that was actually sent to me specifically for this project. And part of the crochet suit contained part of my period blood that I had for two months. And it was to me, um, this crochet suit was with me for this eight days, collecting all my sweat, serving as a bridge between my skin and the environment. It was not a wall. It was a breach, uh, sort of like a how I see my skin. I, I see my skin as like a bridge that connects my interior with the exterior. So this suit was like another bridge that it was collecting my inside with the exterior. And I was just letting it go by walking, getting myself into this oil drum flowing with water. So I saw that as like my rebirth, as, as like a cleanse of letting it go. You wrote a poem as part of the project. Right. And I wonder if I could ask you to read it, first in Spanish and then in English. Right, right, right. Mi pulso narra la adrenalina de un incendio que con agua no se apaga. Saludo al presente en donde mis huellas del pasado germinan mientras mis pies se liberan de sus zapatos. Y es así como mis huellas Narran el guión que me negaba escribir. Es aquí donde mis piernas se vuelven más fuertes al golpear el suelo. Es aquí donde mis brazos aprenden a balancear todo el peso de mi cuerpo. Es aquí donde aprendo que el esfuerzo físico lo oxigenan mis ancestros, mis abuelos y hoy más que nunca, mi madre. And then in English, like I mentioned, it's called uh, Footprints that Sprout and in Spanish, Huellas que Germinan. My heartbeat is the rhythm of the adrenaline that can be stopped with water. I salute the present where my footprints of the past are now sprouting while my feet get finally freedom from their shoes, from their own shoes. And it's like this, how my footprints share the story that I always wanted to ignore. It's here where my legs become stronger as they hit the soil. It's here where my arms learn to balance the weight of my body. And it's here where I learned that my ancestors, my grandparents, oxygenate my strain 
and today more than ever, my mother. Thank you. It's beautiful. Thanks. A couple of things I just want to explore um, that the poem triggers in me, and I'll just make associations if they're meaningful for you. Mm -hmm. The first one has to do with feet and legs and shoes and footprints mm -hmm. and the relationship that they have to time, to past, present, and future. Mm -hmm. I was writing during during the walk and thinking about how, as I mentioned previously, how my feet were collecting the soil and transferring to a different space and how I was, my body was weaving itself into the opposite way of the traffic where, uh, where people were coming down and I was coming up. And the time of being away from my daily life to perform something that was physically changing me and emotionally but not only that it was also inter like this interaction that I was having with the, the environment socially with other people and also physically with uh, crossing these different like cities these different neighborhoods and experiencing like um, the different ways that people were like feeling me when I was walking in in these different communities because I had like different reactions. Mm. Pretty much my path from Tijuana to Los Angeles, it was more like how I navigated to as a person of color under the shadows in a country that has a different culture, a different language and different resources that I didn't have before. So that's why I was seeing all of these things as a privilege. And these are things that we have, that I have now in my everyday life as a resource that not just me, I think a lot of people take for granted. And another way I thought to explore with you too is how, how our bodies tell stories. Yeah, and I think that humans and, you know, how art in particular tells a story in different ways. You can say it through painting, you can use, you can use like sculpture, prints, and, and you, you will see the physicality and the mark of the artist in, in their individual uh, projects. But in this particular project where I use my body, it was not just my entire physically body. It was also my, my, you know, my mind connecting with my heart and being able to also understand myself, understand and be be nice to me too. <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah, it's time for that. Yeah. 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 yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and too, what you were saying before too, with the connection of the physicality and the memories, and again, that links to the essence of time that I was trying to explore, but also the, you, you carry that story and some of it you're conscious of and some of it you're not, you're, yeah. but the physicalization mm -hmm. of it brought it to the surface. For you. Right, right. Yeah. And, and, and that happened because people were asking me, like, how are your feet? How are you doing? And I'm like, I'm physically fine, but I can't deal with the emotional emotions anymore. Like, it's too much. Mm -hmm. um, it, was, it happened during the walk that, you know, I was dealing with a lot of emotions and a lot of conscious emotions and unconscious. And then when I got back, I had to deal with the emotions of 
the walk plus the emotions of being back and realize what I have done and also the power that your body has when it moves right. you know yeah right. And then the last question, really, that I wanted to explore about the poem, too, which goes very deep for me, is the relationship between these elements or these materials, soil and water and sprouts and metal and crocheted material, and the relationship that has to really a sense of your strength as a human being, as well as your freedom as a human being. Right. Right. Um, yeah. And those are like essential elements for like our survival as humans. You know, like we need we need the soil. You, you know, we need the same amount of pressure from earth and gravity in order to be standing. And, you know, we need water in, in order to survive because our bodies are like, well, by now my body is like 50% water uh, by my age. <laughs> you know, we're like decreasing those things over time. And this fiber is, uh, you know, uh, serving as a, as a bridge. is like textile is some form of, uh, to me, not decolonization, but you know, it's part of like something that has been imposed to us, you know, or Western clothes. It was my way of making my my own suit, my own shedding, my own traje. That's what I call it, a traje, like my own outfit mm. that I could let it go. These are like fundamental things that we have in, in our planet as resources, but we also need them in order to survive. And what we also need to survive is love. Exactly. And I think that's a very fundamental element. Yeah. And in my talk at graduation, when I told your story, I called it a love story. Do you think it's a love story? Yeah, it's a love story. How do you think about it as a love story? Um, my mom had to leave because she loved us so much. Um, she didn't leave us behind. Uh, she didn't abandon us. It was about love. She had to go back and forth because she loved us. Um my grandma took care of us because she loved us. And a lot of people were there for me because they probably loved me and they found something in me that, you know, it might be different or I don't know. But it's totally love. I found profound love too from strangers during the walk. And the reason I have to ask about that, I mean, obviously it's, it's the element of the story that, you know, goes so, it goes fathoms deep in an already incredibly complex and beautiful and tragic and stirring story. But also we politicize these things in our world. Mm -hmm. And suddenly you pause for a moment and you realize it is, it's about love first. Right. Right. And it's about a human element that is so hard to see when the screen becomes all about politics. Yeah, I think we kind of forgotten that uh, we're like one human race. And I found that very interesting by like the performance of how by the use of my body, people were able to connect and and see this story maybe closer, a little bit closer when this brush becomes my body and, and my prints become the paint, you know? And the canvas is just earth. Mm. Lovely. Just so our listeners know, you and your mom are okay now. Immigration issues are taken care of. Right. You have graduated from Art Center now and you're beginning your life and your practice and 
all is moving forward for you. Everything's moving. Yeah. Everything's moving forward. Jackie, I can't thank you enough for your time, for your candor, for your open-heartedness. Your story goes very, very deep for so many of us. And the fact that you are so courageous in telling it and open in letting us know what the story is just brings us into a sense of your humanity that's very profound. Thanks. Thank you. And thank you for being part of this community, of being part of Art Center. We're incredibly proud of you. And you're an inspiration to all of us. And I think a deep, deep inspiration to many students who are here now and yet to come. Thank you. Thank you so much for everything. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed this episode of Change Lab. The best way to support the show is to share it with your community. And please feel free to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, or the Apple Podcasts app. For a deeper dive into the astonishing creativity and innovation coming out of Art Center, please visit our website at artcenter.edu. Thanks for listening. Change Lab is produced and recorded at Art Center College of Design in Pasadena, California. I'd like to extend a special thanks to our small but mighty production staff, producers Christine Spines and Matt Mays, editor Emily Van Bergen, audio engineer Nick Petrilla, and post-production provided by Freedom Podcasting.